everyone, and welcome to the Every Word Podcast. All right, welcome everybody to the Every Word Podcast once again. We are continuing on with our study of Genesis, and today we are tackling Genesis chapter 19. Now, this is quite the chapter. Um, hopefully, this is uh, not too long. Uh, So we'll try to be concise with our comments uh, while conveying uh, as much information to you as possible. So without further ado, Genesis chapter 19, we are reading from the New Living Translation. Going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 11. So here we go. Verse 1. That evening, the two angels came to the entrance of the city of Sodom. Lot was sitting there, and when he saw them, he stood up to meet them. Then he welcomed them and bowed with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, come to my home to wash your feet and be my guests for the night. You may then get up early in the morning and be on your way again. Oh no, they replied, we'll just spend the night here in the city square. But Lot insisted, so at last they went home with him. Lot prepared a feast for them, complete with fresh bread made without yeast, and they ate. But before they retired for the night, all the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, Where are the men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out to us so we may have sex with them. So Lot stepped outside to talk to them, shutting the door behind him. Please, my brothers, he begged. Don't do such a wicked thing. Look, I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you and you can do with them as you wish. But please leave these men alone for they are my guests and under my protection. Stand back, they shouted. This fellow came to town as an outsider and now he's acting like our judge. We'll treat you far worse than those other men. And they lunged toward Lot to break down the door. But the two angels reached out pulled Lot into the house, and bolted the door. Then they blinded all the men, young and old, who were at the door of the house. So they gave up trying to get inside. All right, AJ. Let's hear it. All right. Thank you for the reading, Ethan. In verse 1, we see, you know, it's just kind of picking up kind of where we left off. In Genesis 18, we see the two angels that... If you remember back to our last episode on Genesis 18, um, as God stayed and lingered with Abraham while Abraham began his great intercession, the two angels that were with him began to make their way over to Sodom. And so now we're picking up the story with the two angels that have now come over to Sodom. And notice here, too, how uh, in the first couple of verses, Lot's reaction to seeing these men is very similar to what we saw Abraham do when he saw the three men come into his camp earlier. He drops everything. He welcomes them, immediately offers them to reside with him for the night. Now, you know, I made some notes here uh, about, you know, kind of the recognition, recognizing who these visitors were. However, I'm going to kind of hold off on these notes because there was something else that I dug into and I found later that I think might better explain kind of what was going on here and why there's this urge to suddenly drop everything and uh, immediately just go to catering uh, to their every women need, so to speak, and even begging them. Uh, We see in verse three, lots even begging them, insisting, hey, come stay with me. Don't stay out in the city square. Come stay at my house. Um, So I'll kind of touch base a little bit more on that here in just a few minutes. 
But um, in verses four and five, we do see where the Bible tells us that all the men of Sodom is kind of how it says it in the in New Living Translation came to Lot's house from all corners of the city and, and from all backgrounds. And this really helps paint the picture of just how rotten and ripe the sin uh, in the city had become. Uh, the rottenness is further uh, confirmed when we see the men shouting at Lot to bring out his visitors, not because they're fearful that these visitors are there for an ill will, not because they're just random outsiders or because that they had any evidence that they were doing wrong, but because they were actively wanting to fulfill their homosexual desires. And you can see here how given, you know, given over, if you want to say that, how given over these men of Sodom were to their sins. Basically, I mean, right as the day is beginning to close and everybody's getting ready to go to bed, every, I mean, everyone in the city, all the men of the city literally go out and make a conscious, willing effort uh, to go and try to gain access to these visitors for unholy reasons. And, you know, but Lot stopped everything he was doing to cater to the visitors. Um, you know, as Lot stopped everything to cater to the visitors, Sodom stopped everything uh, it was doing to cater to its sins. So that, that one was kind of one that I, I picked up on when I was reading it. And then in 7 and 8, verses 7 and 8, these are some very daunting verses to try to tackle, especially in <laughs> yeah. today's society. So I'm going to tread as lightly as I can upon these eggshells and try not to get in trouble. Um, but like I said, they're... What I'll explain, what I'll kind of go into in, in, in this uh, in these notes will also, I think, kind of tie back to, to the reaction that we saw uh, with Lot when he first encountered these visitors. So bear with me as I kind of try to go in through here. Um, and so verse 7 and 8, that's where we see Lot ready and willing to throw his own virgin daughters out to the proverbial wolves, uh, literally kick them out the door in the effort to protect these strangers that he just received. Um, but why, you know, why would he be willing to sacrifice? You would think that even if Lot knew that these men were angels, you know, of God, that, that he would not, he would still not want to throw his own daughters out the door, um, in a hope that that would pacify these people enough to not come in and, and bother the angels, so to speak. You know, it really sounds ludicrous and just insane at face value, but here, uh, I think here is where we get a little bit of our American customs because we, we read this with 21st century American customs in mind for the most part. If you're an international listener, um, your customs apply here. So, <laughs> um, And then there, you have to comp contrast this against the ancient Hebrew customs um, of this time that would have vastly differed from what we see as acceptable, I guess. Um so in those days, and this was found on an article, um, I, I can't remember where the article was, what the name of the article was, but it's like this website that's devoted to uh, kind of the study of the ancient Hebrew and their culture and the, the things that they would do and kind of how it ties into some of the things in the Bible. Now, how accurate it is, I don't know, but it, it seemed pretty uh, plausible. So this is why I'm going to kind of go into it. Um, according to it, in those days, it was believed that receiving unexpected guests was a tremendous honor um, because it was deemed to be orchestrated by God himself. Any unforeseen visitor uh, that would come into the house or would come up and approach a, a person or a, a household or a village or whatever um, was to be greatly uh, treated with the greatest and the utmost respect because they, in their eyes, have been commissioned and ordained to be there by God. Um, therefore, the host has now taken on full responsibility of the well-being of their guests. 
And also in their customs of the day, that taking in guests essentially came with an unspoken promise from the host that they would do all that they could that was in their power to protect their guests, which in this case meant for a lot, sacrifice, being willing to sacrifice his own daughters to this, this mob of people outside of his own door. Um, and it kind of begs the question, why didn't he just sacrifice himself then? You know, if this was his pledge or his oath to his visitors, why didn't he just sacrifice himself? We don't know. Um, just in my own feeble thought, you know, I'm thinking uh, probably because if he was really dead set on this, this ideology of I'm going to do everything I can to protect these people because they're my visitors. He was like, if I can throw my daughters out there, then if they'll take them, then I can still stay behind and protect these people. But if I throw myself out there first and then they destroy or they kill me, my daughters may not put up much of a fight and then they're going to get to my visitors anyway. So I, I don't know. that That's just speculation. Not really sure what the ideology there was. I think a lot of this kind of boils down to the difference in, you know, it, this was over 2000, well over 2000 years ago. And there's a huge gap here in the custom, just like there's a, a huge gap in the customs just in different countries today. We all live in the same time frame, but the customs in America versus the customs in like a country like India are vastly, vastly different. Um, so kind of moving forward from that, trying to keep on going here. So verse nine uh, leads you to kind of believe that during Lot's time there in Sodom, he had been openly chastising the citizens of the country for indulging their sins. Um, because you see the people shout, uh, you know, now he's acting like a judge. So thus to say, um, he's probably been out there condemning them for their sins or whatnot. And, you know, people will sometimes despise or even generate hatred towards you for being open and honest about your beliefs or your faith in God. But this, when I was typing this out and writing it, it brought on an entirely new thought to ponder for me. Obviously, Lot was openly critical, or he seemed to be openly crit critical, of the sin of his city, yet he chose not to leave the city until it was on the verge of destruction. And even, we'll read in the next few verses that he was dragging his butt, and the angels literally had to drag him and his family outside of the gates of the city before the full destruction fell upon uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, you know, even in the face of utter destruction, he had to be drug out of the city. Not that he wasn't trying, but he didn't have a sense of urgency that he should have. Um, but to me, when I kind of read that and put it all together, it kind of sounds like Lot was trying to ride the spiritual fence, so to speak. You know, when when he states, when, while he may have stated his beliefs, um, he really didn't do anything to actively get out from among them, so to speak. Um you know, and there's possibly he may have been enjoying what the city had to offer him, you know, whether that was fresh fruits and vegetables, fresh land versus cattle. We know the land was was green for cattle. That's one of the reasons he chose to settle in that direction uh, was because it, it looked like, uh, you know, fruitful and bountiful land um, compared to the other direction that uh, Abraham wound up going into. Um you know, water protection, whatever, whatever the reasons were and whatever the benefits were of the city at the time. Um, and he was willing to dwell among the sinful to keep those, those, uh, things that he enjoyed. Um, so, you know, we really need to remind ourselves. I need to remind myself sometimes to check my surroundings. You know, am I willingly living somewhere or doing something because it's a benefit to my earthly life, but maybe it's suffocating my spiritual life. And that is all that I have on the first 11 verses of this very long chapter. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, Brother Ethan, what do you have? Uh, well, great thoughts, AJ. Um, I guess I want to take a look at Lot. You know, we, we read these things and we're like, wow, how could Lot do that? Well, the New Testament kind of gives us a slight commentary, a very, very, uh, a, 
a very interesting verse is found in Second Peter chapter 2, and, and it's found in verse 8. It says that Lot was a, quote, righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. So you read that verse in the New Testament, and then you go back and you read this. It it, it seems kind of hard to um, reconcile Peter's take on on uh, the character of Lot. So I, I guess I I focused a little bit on okay, you know, what can we find here that that kind of demonstrates that Lot was a righteous man? What kind of clue, clues can we find here that? seem to indicate that not saying he's a perfect person, but right. he was doing some right things. So, um, I guess in the first verse, uh, some clues here, lot was sitting at the entrance of Sodom and he was sitting there and seemed to be waiting for unexpected visitors. And, Here's my take on it. And this is not Bible. This is just Ethan speculating. Okay, how am I reconciling Lot being a righteous man with this narrative? I wonder if Lot was looking for uh, specific visitors, visitors coming into the city and realizing, oh, no, they're coming here. These people need to be protected. Uh, these need These people need to be protected from these crazy people who just want to, you know— essentially rape people right and uh you know i need i need to find them before they get lost before they get into the wrong crowd they need to come to my house i need to make sure that they're protected and so i i think this is uh this is just my take on it i think a lot is not necessarily looking for a special visitor here he's just looking for any sort of traveler that's coming through the city and Mm -hmm. trying to make sure that they're taken care of and i think that's showing um, Lot's heart, he's making the most out of a, a bad situation and trying to help people um, who who can be helped. And uh, I, I'm reminded of that verse where, uh, you know, show, show kindness to strangers for some have entertained angels unaware. Right. Um, I, I, f- I feel like maybe, maybe that verse is kind of uh, calling back to this particular passage of scripture where, Lot's doing this, and sure enough, these these two men that he shows hospitality to and trying to protect these people, hey, they they happen to be angels. So uh, that's kind of my take on why Lot was sitting there at the entrance. Now, another detail that uh, I noticed here that I have never noticed reading this uh, this story, Lot makes bread for these two visitors without yeast. So it's unleavened bread, bread without mm-hmm. leaven. And it seems like a small detail, but it's actually a pretty significant detail. So leaven in the Bible is, in general, a symbol of sin. And so uh, we could take a look at um, the Passover uh, as a parallel. Uh, so the Passover is when the the Israelites, they're packing up. They're going to leave Egypt, headed toward the Promised Land. They celebrate the Feast of Passover where they uh, they make unleavened bread. Um, and so that bread being unleavened is number one, it's a, a symbol of being without sin. Uh, what's interesting here is that Lot also leaves the city. Well, you know, spoiler alert, Lot leaves the city in a, in a, in a hurry because of God's impending destruction on, uh, on Sodom. Well, in the Passover story as well, 
um, the Israelites, they don't allow their bread to rise. It's unleavened bread because they're about to head out. I, I don't know if you guys remember the Passover story, but that night they're eating unleavened bread. They've got their belt on. They've got their shoes on. They've got their staff in their hand. They're ready to go. And so uh, that, that's kind of the point is um, that unleavened bread not only signifies that there's no sin involved, but there's also this readiness and this preparedness uh, to leave in a hurry. So I think this detail here of there's unleavened bread, he's serving unleavened bread, shows that Lot doesn't have sin in his life, and he is ready to leave Sodom. Now, we're going to keep on reading, and we're going to find out that um, that Lot still um, has a, a few uh, second guesses, or he there's some hesitation behind uh, or hesitation to some of the, the commands that the angels give. And so Lot here isn't a perfect example, right, right. of how we should respond uh, and how we should make sure our lives are ready. But I think the point here is that Lot is our imperfect example of a righteous man. And we'll see kind of throughout the story how those imperfections keep on they, they keep on cascading to worse and worse things. Mm-hmm. So that being said, he's he's looking for visitors, trying to protect them. The unleavened bread seems to be a clue that kind of indicates maybe Lot here truly is a righteous man. So how do we explain this, this scene where he's offering his daughters to the Sodomites? Go for it. Well, <laughs> I, I tell you, it, it's hard. I, I don't know mm-hmm. if it's a cultural thing or not. Um, but I did find an interesting explanation in the pulpit commentary on biblehub.com. So they gave a few different explanations. Uh, one lot selected the lesser of two sins, sodomy versus, Mm -hmm. you know, that, I mean, that's, that's one explanation. I'm not saying that's the right decision by lot, but that's one explanation. Um, you mentioned lot protecting his guests, um, but explanation number three kind of fits with this Lot being a righteous man. You mentioned Lot. Um, it seems to indicate that Lot had been condemning the the citizens of Sodom for their absolute wickedness. Mm-hmm. And uh, he kind of bargained, or uh, not bargained, but kind of betted a little bit, where he believed that they were so perverse and that they were so just messed up in their thinking that if he offered his daughters to them, they they wouldn't even be interested. And and as you can see, we read in this passage, they weren't. <laughs> they weren't right. interested at all in his daughters. And so maybe it maybe Lot in a way was condemning condemning the Sodomites even then uh by offering his daughters. So mm-hmm. that's the the most I would say a uh, flattering explanation for Lot <laughs> uh, that I could find. Uh, so, I, I once again, I, th- I think this is it's open to interpretation. Uh, but taking that verse from Second Peter and looking back at this at this passage, I think the assumption that we have to make is Lot's a righteous man. He's not a perfect man, uh, but he's a righteous man. And we'll see that he's an imperfect example of that. And we'll see how that cascades to bigger and bigger failures as we continue to read the chapter. So that's all I've got. All right. Well done. And uh, 
Actually, I, I, I remember reading because I went to the same place you did for the commentary. <laughs> okay. I remember reading that commentary, and, and I remember it, it stuck out in me. But like you said, I, I think there's a lot, especially in this first bit of the chapter, and probably I, I, I think you'll agree on the rest of the chapter, that is, like you said, up to interpretation. And I like how we both... You know, we we both had our own commentary about it, but it didn't exactly overlay one on top of the other. It's just kind of two different viewpoints. But, um, but I think they both tell the story of what you were kind of summarizing there. Is you know, God, uh, God, Lord, um, <laughs> Lot was righteous yet imperfect, and so I think that's a very good way to put it. I don't. I think both ways that we we kind of told and explained. I think both back that up, you know, kind of to say, like you said, you know, he was trying to, he was trying to preach to the, preach to the people around him, but he still had his imperfections. So, um, well done. Well done. So I will go ahead and I will try to read on, I'm going to pick up in verse 12 and I'm going to read through verse 29. So quite a few scriptures here, um, but we'll try to go through them as quickly as we can. So uh, picking up in verse 12, verse 12 says, Meanwhile, the angels questioned Lot. Do you have any other relatives here in the city? They asked. Get them out of this place, your son and sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone else. For we are about to destroy this city completely. The outcry against this place is so great it has reached the Lord, and he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot rushed out to tell his daughter's fiancés, Quick, get out of the city. The Lord is about to destroy it. But the young man thought he was only joking. At dawn the next morning, the angels became insistent. Hurry, they said to Lot. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here. Get out right now or you will be swept away in the destruction of the city. When Lot still hesitated, the angels seized his hands and the hands of his wife and two daughters and rushed them to safety outside the city, for the Lord was merciful. When they were safely out of the city, one one of the angels uh, ordered, Run for your lives and don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. Oh no, my lord, Lot begged. You have been so gracious to me and saved my life, and you have shown such great kindness. But I cannot go to the mountains. Disaster would catch up to me there, and I would soon die. See, there is a small village nearby. Please let me go there instead. Don't you see how small it is? Then my life will be saved. All right, the angel said. I will grant your request. I will not destroy the little village, but hurry, escape to it, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. This explains why the village was known as Zoar, which means a little place. Lot reached the village just as the sun was rising over the horizon. Then the Lord rained down fire and burning sulfur from the sky of Sodom and Gomorrah. He utterly destroyed them, along with the other cities and villages of the plain, wiping out all the people and every bit of vegetation. But Lot's wife looked back as she was following behind him, and she turned into a pillar of salt. Abraham got up early that morning and hurried out to the place where he, where he had stood in the Lord's presence. He looked out across the plain towards Sodom and Gomorrah and watched as columns of smoke rose from the cities like smoke from a furnace. But God had listened to Abraham's request and kept Lot safe, removing him from the disaster that engulfed the cities of the plain. All right, Brother Ethan, what do you have for us? All right. Thanks, AJ. Uh, I mm-hmm. will try to be quick, but kind of continuing on uh, my thought on, you know, Lot being a righteous man, but not a perfect man and seeing his imperfections kind of cascade to worse and worse things. Um, here is a feather in the cap of Lot. He goes and he tries to tell the city, hey, destruction is coming. He tries to tell his son-in-laws, right? His, his sons-in-law, mm-hmm. hey, you guys need to get out. It's 
it's going to get bad really quick. Yep. And uh, so he he does his part in sharing the imminent new the news of imminent danger and imminent destruction to the city of Sodom. Um, I I'm kind of reminded of Noah uh, preaching to his generation about mm-hmm. the the incoming flood and um, just how the people responded to to him and right. blew his message off. Very similar um, scene here. So there's some kudos there to Lot. But uh, we're going to keep on reading, and I I feel like here's kind of the turning point, and and Lot starts making some decisions that that end up hurting him in in the end. So, verse 16, uh, the angels tell Lot, hey, you need to get out of the city now. And the Bible tells us that Lot hesitates. Mm -hmm. And... uh, I think that's an interesting thing that 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 happens there. An interesting detail that Lot isn't quite ready to leave Sodom. Right. He's. I, I am not sure what the motive is. If if it's his home, his possessions, it, maybe it's his sons-in-law. That's possible. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I family friends. I don't know what the the motivation is there for his hesitation, but but God is merciful. You know, despite not immediately following a command, God um, is merciful. He's and through those angels, He brings Lot and his family outside the city, and so um, God is showing His mercy despite some signs of weakness and uh, signs of potential failure coming up here uh, for Lot. So thank God for his mercy. Uh, We're going to see how God keeps showing mercy up to a point. So um, as much as God is being merciful in this story, um, I'm I'm reminded of a verse in Matthew chapter 10, verse 15, and not really to take it this to like a a totally negative uh, turn for this for this uh, episode, but Jesus tells his disciples as he's commissioning them to go preach, and he says, hey, if you go and, and you share this message and they reject you, you need to shake the dust off your feet. And then he says this, Jesus says, it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah mm-hmm. than it is for those who reject you. And that's some pretty serious words from Jesus. I know when we look at Jesus, we think of, you know, this guy who's loving and and arms wide open he's got the little children around him he's the good shepherd but there there's another side of jesus where he doesn't put up with people blaspheming him you know the spirit of god the good news of god and if if people reject those things uh it's going to be better on on the day of judgment for for sodom and gomorrah you know these these cities that were completely decimated right than it is for people who reject the good news and um if anything that should uh incite some compassion right compassion in people who uh who who are rejecting the good news and we need to make sure that we're praying we're interceding for them just like just like abraham did for sodom and gomorrah 
So moving on, God's merciful to Lot despite his hesitation. Well, the angels tell them as they're he brings Lot outside the city. Hey, Lot, you need to go to the mountains. Well, what does Lot do? Instead of obeying the command of the Lord, he mm-hmm. says, hey, is it all right if I go to this small city here? And there's it seems weird. Like, Lot is compromising. He's hesitated on God's command. Now he's right. trying to compromise on God's command. And... uh we're going to see here later in the chapter. I I really think that this leads to the ultimate uh, downfall of lot. But when, when, when you're hesitating on God's commands and then you're compromising God's commands, I I think that's where um, bad things happen. You know, once again, lot receives mercy from God and uh, the angels allow lot to go to, um, to that city, to that small, small town. Um, but God's mercy kind of runs out because Lot's wife turns around despite a direct command from God, turns around, looks at the city being destroyed behind them, and she turns to a pillar of salt. And so, mm-hmm. I, I, although God is merciful and God is is willing to work with this, like he was working with Lot, there comes to a point where he says no more, you know? This this is it. Mm -hmm. I've 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 been night. I've been playing nice here. (laughs) Right. You have to follow my commands and and be obedient and and be completely obedient to to what I'm saying. So, um, we'll keep on reading uh, from here, and uh, we're gonna find out. You know, more bad things happened a lot. Um, but I think it's a result of these things: being hesitant, compromising and being disobedient. So, all right. Well, that's all I've got. I'll hand it right back to you. All right. Well, nice work as always. Um, I like how, especially like right in the front, you brought out uh, the similitudes that you drew uh, between kind of what's playing out here versus, uh, like especially in verses 12 through 14, how that connects or kind of resembles uh, the events of Noah, you know, in the Great Flood, um, because I had the same exact thing essentially in my notes, um, talking about how, you know, the big difference I saw between the two was, you know, Noah, when you look back at him, it took him estimated between 55 and 75 years to build the ark. So, you know, 55 to 75 years of people watching him build this thing that, you know, they're like, what is this thing for? What is, what is rain? You know, what, you know, they would have had plenty of opportunity to have inquired and have been taught and believed and gotten on the boat, so to speak. So they had plenty of time, plenty of warning. Um, the events of Sodom and Gomorrah, seem to play out in about 24 hours. I mean, it's like they show up one day, um, you know, it's gets nighttime. They're going to spend the night. All this ruckus goes on. And then by morning daybreak, uh, literally, uh, you know, 23 says just as the sun was coming over the horizon, daybreak comes and fire and brimstone start coming down from heaven. So, I mean, this is a quick turnover, um, mm-hmm. versus what we saw in, in, uh, Noah. And again, to what you were pointing out to the, the conclusion I drew here was, you know, why did Sodom and Gomorrah happen so much more suddenly, I guess, without warning to the people that actually live there? Um, and, you know, and I think, again, it's it ties into that verse you were talking about, you know, better will it be for the people in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah for the people like us. It's like as time progresses and generations of people have more and more reference material to look back on and say, hey, 
these people were not acting, you know, they were acting sinfully uh, in the days of Noah and they got destroyed. And now we know, hey, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were acting sinfully and they got destroyed. You know, we've got so many points of reference in the Bible to look back and say, you know, being sinful leads to destruction. So we literally, we're out of excuses. We have no excuses left. We've got too much evidence in the Bible that says living an ungodly and an unrighteous and being devout to your sins more than anything else will lead you to destruction. So don't be surprised. Don't look for mercy, you know, when, when you stand before God in judgment and say, oh, I didn't know. And, you know, he's going to be probably playing these two events like on a on a reel in the background. Be like, yeah, you did. <laughs> um, so, you know, that, again, I kind of drew those conclusions like you did. Um, 16 and 17, I, I did make kind of like three key high points here, three key notes. Um, you know, when God brings you or is wanting to bring you out of destruction and sin, three key things here that you can learn from these verses, run as far and as fast of, from it as you can. Uh, number two, escape to the high places. You know, uh, God's, you know, the, the angels, uh, instructions was go to the mountains Get up, get above this, get above your sin, get above this land of sin and waste, um, you know, escape to the mountains, the high places. The Bible makes a lot of reference to the the mountains, you know, the high places in God. You know, we'll, we'll see when Moses goes up on the, the mountain, you know, that's when he gets the, the Ten Commandments and he comes down, his face is all glow and all that stuff. We'll, we'll read all that eventually. Um, but so anyway, the high places are kind of, uh, tied to, uh, symbolically to, you know, a place with God being closer to God. And then the last one, never looking back, you know, don't, don't look back. Don't, don't go back and contemplate the things, um, that, that you left behind or the things that, that were of the sin, uh, of that world. So, um, 18 through 22, um, I said, you know, kind of played out interesting. I did pick up on what you were talking about, uh, with, um, you know, he, he kind of, he's being told to leave, but yet he immediately tries to go in and start bargaining, um, for a better place of residence in his eyes because quote disaster would catch me there. And, you know, I kind of picked up on his distrust of God and his angels as he had literally been drug out of the city. Um, because, you know, like you said, he wasn't being as prompt as he should have. So the angels were literally dragging him out of the city, trying to get him out of there. Um, they, he knows they've done this for his good to avoid destruction, yet he doesn't even trust the same people who brought him out to enough to, when they tell him to go to the mountain, that he will be protected when he's going to the mountain. I mean, sometimes we get kind of spiritually nearsighted like that ourselves. You know, he doesn't, Lot doesn't seem to, at least again, this is just reading it with a context that we have. To me, it doesn't seem like he really wants to leave what's familiar to him, you know, and, and he even pleads for the city, Zoar. He pleads to go to this village um, because he doesn't fully trust that that the angels are, are, I guess, trying to send him somewhere that's going to be in his best interest. Or he doesn't believe that when he gets there, he doesn't believe that God's hand of protection is going to be over him because that's where God has directed him to be. So, um, you know, he, he doesn't extend his faith, so to speak, to where he's going. He only, he, you know, he, well, he essentially doesn't really have a lot of faith at all because he's only believing what he's basically seeing right in that moment. Um, so, you know, a little bit of a, a little bit of a problem there with Lot uh, itself. And I did see somewhere in a commentary that said, you know, the fact that the fact that Lot bargained for the land of Zoar actually wound up being almost like Lot's own little intercession on behalf of this entire village. Um, because I think it says Zoar somewhere in there. It says Zoar was one of the 
like the plains or the valley cities that were kind of like the suburbs outside of Sodom and Gomorrah had Lot not quote bargained to go there and he that that whole village would have probably been gone it probably been probably would have been consumed hmm. by the the hellfire and brimstone of Sodom and Gomorrah and we'll see actually in uh, in the verses to come we'll see after our next reading uh, that that they don't stay there very long so it kind of you you the questions brought them back of my mind. What's the correct answer to it? I don't know. Um, you start getting into speculation, not a lot of evidence there, but it, you kind of, I kind of started to ask the question, should, should he have bargained for Zoar? You know, should they have been taken out with the rest of Sodom and Gomorrah? You know, should, should they have been, should they have been allowed to have gone with them instead of, you know, because Lot now bargained to go there. Now there's this little pocket of people that were, maybe living unrighteously that God meant to destroy, but because Lot stepped in and God didn't want to destroy Lot because of Abraham's intercession, now this people of, of unrighteousness now still remain, so to speak. So I, I don't know. You're getting into conjecture land there. Um, anyway, I'm going to keep going going. Um, and then the last part here that I wanted to kind of talk about was the whole pillar of salt business um, with, with Lot's wife turning into it. Um, you know, we read the scripture and the way it's interpreted in English as, uh, you know, it says Lot's wife looks back because she's kind of lagging behind a little bit, it sounds like. Um, I read in one commentary that the Hebrew word for look back doesn't necessarily mean to look over your shoulder in the traditional sense. Um, it could be interpreted as to mean like to regard, to consider, or to pay attention to. I mean, it could have been that Lot's wife, she, maybe she didn't physically turn around, but she may have in her heart have longed for the city so much or she her desires were just she was so dead set on wanting to stay in Sodom and Gomorrah and her love was there to the to the degree that uh maybe God saw her heart and her desire to stay and thus turned her into a pillar of salt and you know and then you get into the pillar of salt itself first of all a little funny for you when I was a kid and they always told us the Bible story, I did not realize that, see, I'm from the South, okay? I'm from Mississippi. And a lot of our words here get kind of slung out the wrong way. Um, so a lot of people around here, when they say pillar, that means a like a pillow, like a pillow you sleep with. So all my childhood, I'm thinking this woman turned into like a bedside pillow made out of salt and she's just laying there on the roadway. <laughs> It took me till I got older and realized there was a difference in the spelling, and that's this was an entirely different word um, <laughs> before I realized that she wasn't a piece of like bedroom equipment just laying there on the side of the road made out of salt. Wow. Um, so little little funny little funny one there that's for a you. Good one. I love it. <laughs> um, but you know, as far as the the whole like pillar salt thing, cu- a couple of thoughts on it that I had, you know, because I was just trying to dig into like, why salt. Of all things, why are you going to turn her into salt, you know? Um, one thing I read uh, is that maybe she wasn't physically turned into salt, maybe because maybe maybe she died standing in place, and the brimstone and the fire and everything that was going on, maybe the soot and the ash from all that, um, as it was kind of falling down, maybe covered her, making her look like a pillar of salt. I'm not so much big on that one. The one I think that might be a little bit more likely, um, and I think kind of fits, is uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, if you look where it was geographically, was kind of on a peninsula near the Dead Sea. So if you know anything about the Dead Sea, Dead Sea is loaded with salt, like so much salt that almost anybody can float. 
Um, that's the whole reason people go there. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, it's very rich in salt. So naturally the area around it, you would think would be extremely rich with salt too. So very salty land, long story short. Um, therefore she was turned into a pillar of salt so she could join or become one with mm-hmm. the land of destruction that she longed, she longed for. She does, she desired it in her heart so much that, God almost, it's almost like God granted her deepest desire, but her deepest desire when granted, she became part of this desolate landscape that was destroyed and punished because of their sin. So I found that to be kind of interesting. Um, you know, if that's the case, I don't know. Again, a little bit of conjecture there, but I, I thought that was a little bit almost poetic. So, um, that's all I got on it. Yeah. That's very poetic. Very good like that oh this is what you wanted huh <laughs> yeah it's like, all right poof, you're poof. welcome yeah you're welcome i like it poetic mm-hmm. all right well continuing on so we're going to uh re- pick back up in verse 30 and read through the end of the chapter so verse 30 afterward lot left zoar because he was afraid of the people there And he went to live in a cave in the mountains with his two daughters. One day, the older daughter said to her sister, there are no men left anywhere in this entire area, so we can't get married like everyone else. And our father will soon be too old to have children. Come, let's get him drunk with wine, and then we will have sex with him. That way, we will preserve our family line through our father. So that night, they got him drunk with wine, and the older daughter went in and had intercourse with her father. He was unaware of her lying down or getting up again. The next morning, the older daughter said to her younger younger sister, I had sex with our father last night. Let's get him drunk with wine again tonight, and you go in and have sex with him. That way, we, we will preserve our family line through our father. So that night, they got him drunk with wine again, and the younger daughter went in and had intercourse with him. As before, he was unaware of her lying down or getting up again. As a result, both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their own father. When the older daughter gave birth to a son, she named him Moab. He became the ancestor of the nation known as the Moabites. When the younger daughter gave birth to a son, she named him Ben-Ami. He became the ancestor of the nation now known as the Ammonites. All right, AJ, go ahead. All right. I'm going to go ahead and try to bring this plane in for a landing on my part. So, uh, so I want to pick up in verse 30 there. So kind of, as I was alluding to in my last little digression there, um, 30 kind of picks up, uh, with a lot after he's been in Zoar for a little bit of time. Don't know how long, but, um, you know, it says he, he picks up and he, he hightails it out of there, so to speak, because he's afraid of the people. So it, it you know, makes me wonder if the city maybe had a little bit of a sinful nature as Sodom and Gomorrah did, which I would be inclined to believe because as we said somewhere in this chapter, I can't remember where it's at. Um, it kind of, it made it sound like, or stated that this city was in the same land or in a, almost a suburbish area of Sodom and Gomorrah. So probably a lot of the morals or lack thereof had probably through osmosis made its way out to this land so if if i were to assume lot after being there for some time started kind of saying hey these people have got serious morality problems and sinful problems 
I am not sticking around until this place gets lit up with fire and brimstone again. So he's like, I'm out of here. He learned his lesson from Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and again, that kind of ties back into kind of that question I left in the air um, the last time I was speaking about, you know, maybe, maybe Zoar should have went with the left, the, the rest of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe so. Maybe because Lot was so adamant that he wanted to go into a city um, versus going where God wanted him to go in the first place, that maybe there was this pocket of sin that got left behind because, you know, uh, God's love for Abraham's intercession as well as his love for Lot himself uh, was enough to to override that destruction of that little village. I, I don't know. You can kind of seek God in your own time about that one. I have no idea. So I'll leave that one up to you to decide. Um, but, uh, you know, but one interesting commentary that I did read um, was that, you know, before Lot entered Sodom and Gomorrah, if you remember back, I don't remember what chapter it was, but when he and Abram at the time were deciding which directions they were going to take their uh, caravans, essentially, um, you know, the whole reason they were kind of having this argument that led to this splitting up, they had so much, and we talked about it a little bit, they had so much in terms of wealth um, that basically their wealth were, was competing and their, all their cattle were competing with land uh, for the land that they had because there was so much. Um, but because Lot made that almost initial gut decision to go toward what looked to be the better path, um, and we see him go through all of this just torture almost and by the time he finally makes his way to the mountains where he should have been in the first place he winds up being a cave dweller and uh essentially with what it sounds like to be nothing left so he went from a very rich man to now he's a caveman um and you know just look at all that he's lost just because he didn't yield to his elders and he didn't seek god when he should have when he was looking for a land to settle in so just a little nugget there for you to kind of chew on um and then the remainder of the events in 31 through 38, this whole business with him and his daughters, um, yeah, interesting. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the commentary from my Apostolic study Bible that I have, um, says that, and it's about the only commentary I could find on it, uh, says the sisters may have believed that they were the last humans on earth. I, I'm not sure that I agree with that considering they just left the city of Zoar. I mean, they knew there were people there when they left. Um, or the other one, which might be a little bit more believable is that since they were survivors of such a horrendous event, maybe this is a culture thing again, um, that they would have been considered cursed or unmarriable. So they felt the only option they had for children was by their father. Um, the only other thing was you know, these, these descendants then kind of turn into the Moabites and the Ammonites. Um, they turn out to be descendants a lot. Um, and then we'll see where, um, Actually, for a while, God honors uh, the land that these people are in, the Moabites and the, the Ammonites. Uh, he honors them because they're descendants of, of Lot. Um, but we'll actually read that uh, when Israel is free from Egypt later, after they've come out of their captivity, um, they'll come to camp in the land of Moab. And instead of being hospitable to their visitors, um, they actually wind up not being hospitable and they uh, send Balaam uh, to go and curse them. And I'm not going to get into all that. Um, but because of that, in Deuteronomy, uh, we will see that, uh, and this, this what I was talking about, the curse that talk, that's in uh, the, the book of Numbers, I believe. And in Deuteronomy, we'll see God commands Israel to have nothing really to do with those people, the Ammonites or the Moabites, for 10 generations. 
uh, because of their hostility toward the Israelites. Yet even later, you'll see Ruth, who is Boaz's wife and ancestor to David, was a Moabite. So uh, even with all that done, a Moabite lineage, you know, by marriage does come back into uh, the, the lineage of David, who we all know winds up being an ancestor to Jesus. So it, it's, I just found it interesting, the whole like wide circle, this whole thing makes with the Ammonites and the, the Moabites. And I'm sure there's a whole lot more on those two, um, those two left. So, uh, that you could really dig into. Hey, great job. Uh, yeah, I love how, you know, obviously this is a sinful act, but you see the, one of the descendants, right. Is, is from, from the line of Moab is, is Ruth mm-hmm. and, and she's tied in directly with the lineage of Jesus. I mean, mm-hmm. it just shows that whatever your background, that you can still become part of the family of God. And I think I think that's an awesome testimony of God's mercy toward us. So awesome job, man. Very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this whole this last bit of the of the chapter is definitely a strange one. The whole whole chapter is very strange, um, but. Uh, I feel like there are a few things that we can look at here that um, can speak to us and, and can be applicable to our lives. So um, the one one detail that I noticed here is that at, in this part of the chapter, Lot finally makes it to the mountains that God had from the very get-go commanded him to go. He had just taken the detour to get there, right? Goes to Mm -hmm. Zoar, finds things aren't working out very well there, and he decides to keep going to the mountains. Makes me wonder if he had just gone to the mountains, if this whole scenario here that happened between him and his daughters, if, if he had just been obedient to God and decided not to compromise, maybe things would have turned out differently. Right. And so looking at our own lives, if God tells us to do something, we can't be bargaining with God and say, Oh, you know, okay. You know, God, you're telling me that I need to, to give this up. Okay. Well, I will give it up, you know, in, um, uh, say a month, you know, I'm just going to indulge myself for a month. And then at the end of the month, Hey God, I'm going to give this up. God doesn't want that. And uh, bad things can happen if you don't follow God and follow him immediately and, and drop what you're doing and uh, and obey the voice of the Lord immediately. So uh, cutting corners to get to where God wants us usually does not end well. And I think that's one takeaway that we can we can take from this story Right. Uh, th- this whole story to me has so many overtones and comparisons between Lot and Noah. And um, I'm just going to point out a few. We talked about the one with uh, Noah preaching to his generation, hey, there's impending judgment. Uh, and, and Noah's preaching to his generation. But right. we see Lot, he only really approaches his sons-in-law. And doesn't go after the entire city. Hey, you guys need to get out of here. God's judgment is coming. Um, And so uh, Lot is kind of like an imperfect Noah in that instance. Well, continuing on, uh, Noah 
is able to save his entire family, his wife, uh, his sons, and their wives. Whereas Lot loses his wife, and he loses his sons-in-law. And mm-hmm. uh, and so once again, Lot is like this imperfect Noah. He doesn't quite rescue all his family, whereas Noah does. Right. And then finally, th- this last bit here in the story is has some remarkable similarities um, between you know the aftermath of the flood for Noah and the aftermath of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah for Lot. If you remember, uh, Noah gets drunk and he's found to be naked by uh, by Ham, his son. And, um, you know, obviously that's not a great situation for you to be in. Right. And uh, so Noah, e- even though he's been perfect up to this point, there's this moment of weakness, right? right. And uh, And he's exposed. So even Noah isn't even this perfect savior if you want to think about it that way Mm -hmm. and lot is shown to be even less of that not only is there just he's drunk he's naked obviously there's some sin that happens some really egregious sin that happens between him and his daughters and um and that that all happens, you know. So not Noah's an, uh, is an imperfect savior at the very end, and and Lot is even less of a perfect savior uh, in this entire story. And uh, what this should uh, point us toward is that humans humans are faulty saviors; mm-hmm. they're not perfect saviors. You know, Noah was able to save his all his family. Lot was able to save some of, of his family. Um, but these stories are pointing us to a greater Savior, the, right. the perfect Savior, the one who says, if you're in my hand, n- nothing can take you from my hand. I'm the perfect Savior. I'm able to save everybody who's willing uh, to, to trust in me. If you trust right. in me, you will live, and you will live eternally. And so Jesus, that's who I'm referring to, <laughs> our perfect Savior, he's able to save, and he's able to completely save. And we read these stories, and we're like, man, these people, uh, they're, they're, there's, they're messed up. Yeah, they're messed up because they're right. only human. And we're looking forward to uh, th- that, that story as we continue to read the Bible of the perfect Savior, the Messiah, who's able to save his people totally and completely. So right. that's all I have. Okay. Well, fantastic job as always. Um, uh, good, good. Um, what am I trying to say? Connection there that you had on the end. Um, I had actually thought about that. I just never made any notes about um, the connection there with the drunkenness of Lot, as well as the drunkenness of Noah. So, um, I think you're right there. It's got a it's got a lot of similarities. So, nice job bringing all of that out and uh, bringing that to the table today. So. All right. Well, with that being said, I think we are finally at the end of this chapter. So uh, thank you guys so much for hanging around and sticking with us through the entirety of this episode. And, uh, you know, of course, we've said it several times during the recording. This has definitely been a different one for us. Um, There's a lot of stuff in here that 
you know, a lot of times when me and Ethan record, we always make separate notes. We don't, we don't really ever come together and come to a consensus on what we're going to talk about. But, uh, more times than not, we, we wind up echoing each other for the most part, you know, in some form or fashion. Uh, but this one was one that, you know, um, we, we actually provided some, some different takes. I think they were very par- parallel in a lot of ways. Um, but I think it just kind of goes to show some of the interpretation that you can take away from this chapter because of the way it was written and, uh, just some of the events that went on in it. So, so we definitely encourage you to go on and go back, reread this chapter, you know, after you've listened to us and see what God reveals unto you, you know, maybe there's something in there, guarantee you there's something in there that both of us have missed. And maybe God is waiting to reveal it to you when you go back on your own time and go back and reread it. So yeah, share, share your opinion on some of these motives here. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, we look at these and they're like, well, these are some strange, strange instances that have just occurred. We, we would be interested to hear what, what your thoughts are. Yeah, we really would because we're we were scratching our heads pretty hard before we turned on the mics. So, yeah. um, not not saying we uh, and now that we're at the end, I don't know that we're any better off. But um, as far as with any more answers, but I think we dug out some really interesting stuff that that was in there, and and uh, hopefully um, you guys were able to enjoy it. So again, thank you guys so much for joining us this week. We hope that you guys have a great rest of your week. And before I sign off. I do want to jump in here real quick. I did this a couple weeks ago, but I want to do it again just because I think it's fun to do every now and then just to kind of to shout out to all of our different listeners in different regions. So I think the last time I did this, uh, we were in Texas, so I shouted out those guys over there. Um, so this week I'm going with our second uh, second highest population of listeners, which is the great state of Mississippi. Um, so if you are a listener in Ridgeland, Boonville, Corinth, Rienzi, Jackson, Tishomingo, Angmary, Pearl, West Point, or Fulton, thank you guys so much for yes, tuning in. You. And thank you guys for, for joining us on these episodes. Um, you know, we, we have a great time recording them, but we also have a great time knowing that you guys are listening and that you're getting something out of it. So thank you for coming back every week. And if you're a new listener, uh, we hope you enjoyed it and come back and uh, check out some of our new episodes. And if you haven't listened to our old ones, check those out too. We got a bunch of those out there covering uh, everything back to the very first chapter of Genesis. So if you need to do a book report on Genesis, we got you covered, especially in the first nine, what now, 19 chapters. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Well, if that's, if that's everything we got, um, appreciate you guys. And we'll see you guys next week. All right. See y'all.